Boy, those are some hard acts to follow. But uh, batting cleanup, we have, uh, you know, I, I belong to, uh, you know, I don't know, it was about eight, nine years ago. We formed an organization called Scuba Addicts International. And there's a bunch of us that are also addicted to scuba diving. And uh, so we, we every year we descend on a different resort in different places, and we have our own AA meetings in the sunset, you know, and it's just amazing, you know. So one night uh, it was my friend Lloyd's turn to share. I never heard anything like that in my damn life. I said, my goodness gracious, in the face of all that pain and misery, it took a heck of a man to continue on as long as you did. You know, I kept expecting it to end, but no, there was chapter after chapter after chapter, and in spite of unbelievable misery, pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization, it didn't even bat an eye with Lloyd. And uh and I tell you, you know, he's one of the best friends that I have and one of the and someone I admire his recovery. But I'll tell you what, it's like amazing. So I had to have Lloyd come here and share. He likes to sneak in and do these CME talks, you know. But I, I want to hear the real story. Lloyd. Thanks, Jim, for those kind words. It's a privilege to, to be able to share here at uh, IBAA, our uh, our scuba diving group we call Scuba Addicts International. And uh, our slogan is that we're addicted to diving and drinking, which, of course, means that we're the ADD chapter of Scuba Addicts International. And, indeed, we all are ADD. Um, if I can get sober, anybody can get sober. And... Uh, uh, I particularly enjoyed the, the talks before me because I really identify uh, uh, with both of them. But my desire to get sober was always there. I just think that I never really figured out how to do it or couldn't be shown how to do it. Uh, I grew up in a alcoholic family where my my father was both abusive physically and and uh, my mother was smothering to the point of being inappropriate uh, uh, with me but the thing that i learned from a very young age was that uh, i had to perform to get pats on the back and that there were a lot of things that i could do to keep peace in the family and i Try to not have any conflict at any, um, uh, for anything. So consequently, I, I would do whatever anybody wanted me to do. Uh, I took my first drink probably at 14 years old and didn't like it, didn't finish it, uh, but very shortly after that, uh, I took another drink and it began, uh, a, a pattern where I would drink, I would get drunk, I would get sick and throw up, I would pass out, uh, I would generally do something that uh, was uh, uh, outrageous, and I would wake up in the morning with a hangover, not remember what I had done, uh, be in trouble for it, and make excuses for it. And that, that pattern played itself out over and over and over again. I was alcoholic in high school. I didn't drink every day, but when I drank on the weekends, I couldn't stop. I, I never came in that I wasn't drunk. Uh, I lost uh, friends, girlfriends. Uh, my schoolwork was the pride of the family, so I generally was able to, to keep that up um, and probably why I didn't have any more intervention than I did. At 17 years old, I appeared before a judge. I had had three wrecks in a relatively short period of time hitting uh, objects that were not moving, like street lamps and parked cars and a bridge. 
And the judge looked at me and asked me if I was drinking. I said, of course not, sir, Your Honor. And he said, well, there's got to be something wrong with you that you keep hitting these things. And he sent me to uh, defensive driving school. Um uh, and of course, of course, then the the police came to all of them. The police and two of them knew I had been drinking, but they just didn't uh, give uh, DUIs to teenagers. Um, I graduated and went to the University of Virginia, which I picked because of the drinking. In fact, I had gone on a trip in high school, and I was supposed to visit uh, University of Virginia, Washington, Lee, and Yale, and I never made it to Washington, Lee, Lee and Yale because I stayed at the University of Virginia and drank. Um, I lasted about a year and a half uh, when I found out that uh, no matter how good I had been before in school, that I couldn't drink every night, not go to class, and make grades. Um, my third semester, I had two Fs, two Ds, and a C, which came to a .9 average, and uh, they suggested that I take some time and reflect on uh, my academic goals. Uh, so... I went home, and uh, my father had always been in the automobile business, and uh, again, he, he, he came and he went. Uh, he had affairs, and they, used, uh, they would call us in the middle of the night, and, uh, uh, but I decided to go to work for him, and I quickly found out I could not sell cars, um, which is interesting because they had a slogan that said, a car's never been sold without a lie being told, and I generally had no trouble lying. Um, so I went to work in the parts department. And the economy was bad, and he was about to lose the business, and it occurred to me that if I really wanted to make a living, I was not going to be able to do it this way, and I perhaps need to get back to school. Something else occurred during that time before I went back the next fall, and that was I ran into some high school friends that had gotten addicted to Crystal and uh, had uh, come home and joined a small fundamentalist Christian church and had stopped using uh, I went to Catholic schools, and I always had a relationship with God. When I laid there at night with the pillows over my head because my mother and father were yelling and screaming at each other, I would talk to God. Um, there were many, many times when my father would be sitting on top of my mother just beating the hell out of her, and I'd go jump on him try to get him off of her. Um, and I, I, I believed that there was something else, and I believed that there was something that was going to take me uh, out of this. So I started going to this church and I had a spiritual awakening, if you will, and uh, I stopped. Stopped drinking. Uh, went back to school. Uh, had some episodes that year, but basically got stopped and I didn't, I didn't really drink again for about eight years. Uh, I would drink and get drunk at whatever big party there was that year, maybe twice a year, you know, if there was a class party or something like that. Uh, so I, I graduated. I went to the University of Tennessee to medical school. I was, we were poor. I had gotten married to a girl my last year of college, which, uh, I married. I, I know now I did not love her. I married her because I needed somebody. Uh, I needed a relationship to make me, me feel okay. Um, very shortly, I worked on an IV team at night uh, to, to pay for medical school because my father had, in fact, gone bankrupt and um, didn't drink. Graduated from medical school and went to the University of Alabama in Birmingham to do an internal medicine residency. So busy, no money, uh, didn't drink. Uh, in my uh, uh, second year of residency, 
uh, I don't exactly know how to put this. I came home one night, my wife was in the bed with somebody else. Now, interestingly, this other person was my sister's fiancé. And uh, he he traveled. We'd been friends with him in, when we lived in Memphis, and he traveled, and he used to come stay with us. And then the, the pattern changed where uh, instead of coming when I was not on call, he started coming when I was on call. And um, I, 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 I was devastated, but it was kind of an interesting devastation in that I'd been trying to probably have an affair for about six months, uh, thinking I wanted to do it, but just hadn't... Uh, done it and uh, I went out that night and you know kind of found one of the nurses I've been flirting with and you know started having an affair with her and uh, it hit me that I didn't want to put the marriage back together uh, she wanted me to go to counseling and uh, you know try to repair it and I saw myself as this doctor that was a year away from finishing and I could have it all uh, so we got divorced, and uh, of course, then I realized I was alone again, and uh, I immediately found another relationship. Uh, uh, had had dated a bunch of people there for for a while, and uh, in my last year of residency, my drinking escalated because I had I started drinking again, started going to happy hours, didn't think I had a problem. Um, drank, did controlled drinking. Uh, finished my residency, went to Dothan, Alabama with another, uh, young doctor in my class. We opened up a general internal medicine practice. And I, as I hear, uh, so many people talk about, uh, in medicine, I kind of became the golden boy. Uh, I mean, I spent more time with my patients. I was told myself I was really interested in helping people. Um, when I was not on call, I'd get home at nine or ten o'clock at night, uh, had a couple of, uh, uh children. And uh, whenever I did come home, I drank, and my wife began complaining about my drinking. I guess I skipped a part of that senior year, right when my second wife and I were about to get married. She called off the wedding because my drinking had gotten so bad, and she told me if she was going to stay with me, I had to go to an AA meeting. This was 1978. I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought what they said was great. I went to four meetings. I quit drinking, and I was cured. Uh, unfortunately, didn't go back for about another four years. So when I went to Dothan, I had stopped, but then I started again. And uh, it was beginning to interfere with my work. And I, one day I, I smoked and I had bronchitis and I walked in my office. And, and there on my desk was a four-ounce bottle of hycamine cough syrup, which is hydrocodone and phenylpropanolamine. And I just opened the bottle, took a big swig, and it was like my total life had changed. I, I saw my patients. I'd been thinking about going home. I wasn't even on call. I went over to the hospital and tried to pick up some consults and uh, stayed up to like 4 o'clock just working. And I thought, well, this is great. I, you know, I, 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 sh- I should drink this because then I don't have a hangover, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of sipped on that bottle for a while. And then I thought, well, you know, you could get addicted to this. And uh, But I went and got another little bottle at the drugstore. And, of course, the next thing I know, I'm ordering it wholesale by the pint. Um, when I would get it in town, I would tear off the labels of the prescriptions, put them in my wallet so I'd know where I'd gone, how much I'd gotten from what drugstore. Well, there got to be quite a wad of prescription labels in my wallet. 
And one day my wife was looking at my wallet and what she thought I had in there was, of course, condoms, uh, which was about to upset her. So she opens it, she sees her name on all these prescriptions, and uh, she had just read an article in Family Circle magazine about uh, Ridgeview, and she called them and uh, got me on the phone and, and told me if I didn't go, she was going to call the medical board. I talked to somebody over there, and I, I read the article, and I said, well, it sounds like you brainwash people. And he said, well, it sounds like you need brainwashing. <laughs> and I, I said, well, I don't want you to change who I am. And the guy said, you don't have any idea who you are. Um, and I didn't, because there was, there, was this, there, there was this facade that I always tried to keep up, that I was okay, and, uh, and that's, that had worked for me. That was the way that I was able to survive. This wasn't a choice. Uh, I mean, I had evolved into it, if you will, and there was no more way that I could change it than uh, to become one of those horses Kevin was talking about. So I went for an evaluation. I told them I was using. I went to the big group and, you know, and I had, I remember going to the Seventh-day Adventist Hospital next to Ridgeview. I had Tylenol number three and four rolled up in my socks and that was the one place they didn't check. So I was comfortable through that. And they couldn't take me. They told me I would use if I went home, so I needed to stay there. I said, I'm not going to use. Uh, of course, I went home and had a good two weeks uh, before I checked in. When I went, I wanted, and this is the way I approached treatment, this is why I had such a difficult time in treatment, I wanted to please them. I mean, I have people that leave now and they go AMA, and I say to myself, you know, I would never have gone AMA. I wouldn't want to upset my counselor and make him think he wasn't doing a good job. Um, I made up stuff to take the group because I couldn't think of anything to take the group. I mean, for instance, uh, during my second month there, we were, we were in a house group and, and somebody had said, well, you're not bringing up any stuff. And I mean, I was great at feedback. I could give you page and line from the big book. And so I told him my alcoholic father was in the hospital, had a GI bleed and might not make it. And I showed the appropriate emotions and I took the appropriate feedback and I said the right thing. And it was, it never occurred to me that that was insane or dishonest, it was, it, it was, I just didn't have any issues. Um, when I walk in a room, I, I would scan the room, I would listen to what people said, said, and very quickly pick up an impression of everybody, and I always was able to say what, what you got positive feedback for rather than negative. Uh, when I checked out of Ridgeview, I'd gotten to be fairly good friends with Bill Farley, and he was, I was kind of having my exit meeting with him. And he looked at me and he said, Lloyd, I am really concerned about you. And I said, why? And he said, you have done too well. You have not had enough problems. And I said, Bill, that's a hell of a thing to say somebody that's been sitting here for four months trying as hard as they, as they could. And I had I had done my placement at Georgia Mental Health Center with a guy who had uh, kept sending uh, uh, mirror image people back because he didn't like them. And he called Bill and said he wanted three more of me. And it was you know it was my people pleasing, my codependency. 
And I kind of had a resentment at that exit uh, uh, interview because he couldn't tell me anything specific. And uh, two or three months later, when I started using again, I, I, I kept thinking maybe maybe he had something, but I really couldn't. I really couldn't see it. I went back to work. I had no monitoring. There was not Caduceus groups. There was like one Caduceus group in Alabama that met once a month in in Birmingham, and I occasionally went to that uh, went to that group. Um, I didn't have anything to say in Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous made me very nervous. I hated sitting in meetings because I was afraid they would call on me. I'd always make up something ahead of time to say, so when I was called on, hopefully I had it all rehearsed so I could get it out without getting short of breath or nervous or, you know, having a panic attack because I was so worried about what people thought about me or that I would make uh, make a mistake. So, you know, I went and helped a bunch of other people for a while and then I kind of quit going. Um, I began seeing patients that were in my AA groups. I took my sponsor as a patient, so it changed the relationship. Instead of me asking them for help, they were all of a sudden asking me for help, and I'd have clinic after, you know, AA meetings. Um, that did not help me, but it was just the position I liked to be in and, and had always been in. Um, I went out, had been using a lot of hydrocodone tablets and cough syrups, and uh, I just, I couldn't get stopped, and I know I knew that the you know, the hammer was going to fall uh, eventually. And uh, I got connected again with the Fundamentalist Christian Church that actually had approached me, about 20 families. And uh, I'll never forget the first time I went, they, they they all put their hands on me and they prayed for me. And, uh, of course, as a good physician and addict and uh, many times I tried to stop and I would take weeks of vacation and gradually cut down the hydrocodone trying to detox myself, lie in the bed, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, muscle aches, you know, the whole bit, only to get off for a few days and, and go back. And um, these people prayed for me. And I got up the next morning, I didn't, I didn't really feel too bad. And I went to work and I didn't take anything. And I didn't feel good, but I didn't feel horrible either. And uh, I went almost a year from that time without using, and it's still in my mind is an unbelievable miracle that uh, uh, I did that without have, without getting in the bed, without with nothing but mild detox symptoms. And I think I used to ask God to do that for me one more time, and it never happened again. And uh, I guess that was my my one shot. Um, I started taking on these people as patients, and these people I looked up to rather than God. And I found out that taking them with, as patients that they were human and they had faults, and they lied and cheated and stole just like I did. And uh, I lost my faith in them, and um, I started using again. Uh, very quickly, I was up to a lot of hydrocodone, and I I, I had a uh, uh, cancer patient that died and I had a bunch of Demerol and Dilaudid the family had bought back and I got this great idea I'll detox myself with IV drugs because I am so afraid of needles that I would never keep going on those and I'll be able to control that because of this fear well of course everybody knows what, 
what happened. I mean, once I was gone on IV drugs, it was it it, it was no holes barred. Um, probably using oh maybe 24, 30 milligrams of uh, Dilaudid a day. Um, took um, a bottle of Dilaudid out one day. I was riding around and I had just shot up, and I was always able to make good decisions and and good choices after I just shot up. My thinking became clear, and I took the bottle, and I'm driving through the country, and I fling, open it up, and I fling it out the window. And uh, I said, I'm quitting. That's it. Well, of course, about two hours later, I'm back on that same road on my hands and knees in the grass looking for these pills. And I'm down on the ground and I, you know, I'm not having any luck. I figure if I find one, they're all going to be in that bunch. I finally find one and I hear this voice behind me and it's this, this farmer who's on the other side of the fence. He said, what in the hell are you doing? And you know, it's amazing how we can come up with things and how we think. And, and I said, uh, my son's got a fire, a science project and he needs some bugs to put on a poster board and I'm looking for some bugs. Is it okay? He says, oh, sure, 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 that's fine. Anyway, I was in bad withdrawal before I found them. I guess I found about half of them. I went to a, a gas station and uh, shot up. It was okay. Uh, next morning, I had feel chills, shaking chills and fever. I guess I hadn't washed the stuff out very good. And over the next 24 hours, I proceeded to become septic. Uh, at this point in time, my wife thought she might just let me die, and I didn't want to go. I wasn't going to go to the hospital. I was too embarrassed. Um, so I started giving myself IV antibiotics, which really wasn't working. And to make it short, I got very, very ill before uh, my wife's Al-Anon sponsor said, oh, go ahead, call an ambulance. <laughs> and um, my my partners at that point in time uh, had had not notified anybody, and they decided they couldn't let me die, so they called they called the medical board, and uh, I had several visits with them and assured them that I was going to uh, stop using. Uh, I did did not, and um, a pharmacist uh, turned me in. I would create a chart in my office for a patient and put the appropriate history, physical, and so forth in there, and it wasn't really connected to the billing, and. Uh, you know, I'd write prescriptions for that patient, and I'd walk in a pharmacy with a coat and tie and say I was picking up prescriptions. And I always wrote prescriptions for chemotherapy and antibiotics, too, so it, you know, didn't look unusual. So um, I went back to treatment, and I went to um, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in a program run by Dr. D.P. Smith. Some of you may know D.P., and I stayed another four months, and as I am getting ready to leave, a Christian brother and I are having coffee. We're both getting out the next morning, and he says to me, um, Lloyd, I can't tell you how much you've helped me in this time. You've always listened to me. You always had good advice for me. And I said, uh, uh, and I had this flash, and I said, well, you know, Bob, thanks, but I don't think I've ever asked you for help. And he says, you know, you haven't. And he said, Gosh, that really makes me worried about you. I said, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, went home, 
had quit my practice because I told my partners that was the problem, that they were on my nerves. The practice had, they had, it had grown to about eight physicians and the, the business part of it, uh, was, was a hassle. So, uh, last time they confronted me, I said, I just quit. And as, uh, uh, as Kevin just said, I expected them to get down on their knees and beg me to stay. <laughs> they went, well, okay. Um, so I went, uh, I decided I would go work for Veterans Administration because that was salary. I didn't have to do any, um, uh, administrative stuff. And I got a job at the Biloxi, uh, Mississippi VA Hospital. Um, I started using again about three months. Same, had the same experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I just didn't get how it was supposed to help. And my wife refused to move with me. She knew I was using again. She took the kids. She sold the house. Uh, she held a few things over me where I signed powers of attorney and gave her everything. And off I went to Biloxi uh, by myself, got an apartment, and uh, very shortly was writing prescriptions uh, at, at the VA for uh, for Dilaudid, um, spending a lot of time in uh, uh, the VA lab mixing up urine because uh, after I'd gone to treatment again, I did have a contract with the with the Alabama board, um, and so I had to get urines. You know, it was really interesting. The main thing, the when I walked in that time, the, main, uh, the time after taking uh, getting septic, the main thing the board was interested in is uh, uh, my knowledge and capacity to practice medicine if, in fact, I took a Dilaudid out of a cow patty and didn't use sterile water and shot it, rather than the fact that I was using drugs at all. They said, didn't you know better? Uh, so I lasted about four months at the at the VA, and a couple of the doctors that run the physicians group on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi um, intervened on me, and they came out in a tropical storm, which was really amazing. My wife had been calling and said I was using, and I had told them my wife uh, was worried about me being involved with another woman and not to pay any attention, which they believed for a while because I was making this urine at the VA and carrying it around a bottle taped to me so it would be warm and giving those negative urines. Um, so when they came... <laughs> When they came in, they had, I wouldn't open the door, so they had the manager open the door. One of them sat on me, and he weighed about 300 pounds. His name was John Fox. I don't know if anybody knew him from Mobile. He's in South Dakota now. And uh, my my apartment was a mess, needle syringes, blood all over the place. Um, and uh, I told him I was going to punch him in the balls if he didn't get off of me. And he got off. I grabbed my dope and ran and uh, drove in a, a tropical storm about 50 miles, got a motel room and sat there and tried to figure out what I was going to do, um, you know, realizing I could always think clearer with some more Dilaudid in me. Uh, the next morning I went back and I didn't see any police or anything, so I got all the stuff out of my apartment, cleaned it out. I, they had called the chief of medicine that night. I, I, that night I was acting chief of medicine because the guy was out of town and I was on call and all that. And, uh, you know, I said, you can't do this. I'm on call. Come back tomorrow. Um, but I started just driving around. I went to Florida. I went up into Georgia. And uh, I had enough uh, dope for about a week. And uh, 
my wife wouldn't talk to me. And finally, I, I ran out of dope, so I went back to dope and where she was and found out that she had gotten me committed and uh, uh, there was a warrant, uh, you know, a commitment for me, um, which I subsequently got picked up on, was thrown in a psychiatric facility for three weeks where they gave me Valium. And because I was a physician and they knew knew me, um, they let me come in the nurse's station to talk to my lawyer. And while I was talking to my lawyer, I would reach over here and get syringes and needles and water and preps and make up this little kit so I could IV my Restoril and my Valium rather than taking it. I tried to run out one time. They put me in four-point restraints and howled me, which was a really interesting experience. You know, all these experiences have given me the ability to identify with other people. So when somebody tells me, that they got howled on and they were walking down the thing and they couldn't talk or anything. I know what they feel like. <laughs> it's, a, it's a unique experience. I went to the nurse and build a drill, build a drill. Because <laughs> um, I do what I had. Um, they sent me back. I went before. I, had, I decided to have the trial. I went up there and made an absolute fool out of myself. Nobody said anything. I was pleading my constitutional rights and blah, blah, blah. And the judge said I could go to the state uh, psychiatric facility or I could go back to treatment. I chose treatment. Uh, my wife um, hired two off, uh, off-duty deputy sheriffs to drive me back over to Mississippi for treatment. When we got to Mobile, one of them looked at me and said, is it going to bother you if I have a beer? I said, no. Another one said, well, we were thinking we might stop. And I said, that's all right. I'll buy. <laughs> so we pulled off right before we crossed Mobile Bay. And I went and bought two six-packs of beer. And we're driving. We're headed for Hashburg. And, you know, I can always think clearer after getting a little something in and this idea began to form, and so I approached them with it as we were going through Mobile. I said, you know, you know how to take me all the way up to Hattiesburg. They have a branch of this treatment center in Biloxi, and they have cars that go up there every day. Why don't you just let me off there, and then I can ride up the next day, and you won't have to do that. And they said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. So we drove into Biloxi. I go to a phone booth, you know, put the quarter in. Uh, don't punch some numbers and talk, act like I'm talking to somebody and, and go back to the van. I said, they said it was okay. So they took me, they took me to a hotel that was right next to this treatment center. There was actually a treatment center. And, um, um, made sure I got checked in. Well, I got checked in, I immediately called a cab and went to a drugstore where I knew I had some prescription refills on Hycamine. Got as much as I could, went back. Started drinking my hycamine, got dressed, put on a coat and tie, went out to dinner, had a couple of beers, ate a good dinner, came back. In the meantime, my wife and everybody else was frantically looking for me. Um, the next morning, I did, in fact, go over there, and I went back uh, to Hattiesburg to treatment. Uh, my wife had all the money. I had no money. She refused to pay for any more, what did she call it, cookie-cutter, country club treatment, um, and the people in Hattiesburg suggested I go to a state-supported facility. So I went to a, a redone house in Laurel, Mississippi called Serenity House. Um, state-supported facility. Uh, for me, it was good not to be in treatment with doctors for, for, because for once I had no job, I had no money, I had no family. I didn't have anything else to do but to get sober. 
And I started asking people, how do I do this? You know, what I don't know what I've done wrong. Just tell me what to do. I'll do anything that you tell me. I stayed there in their primary program for six weeks and decided to go into their secondary program and spent about five months working in a voc rehab woodworking factory making wooden pallets. It was a great experience. I learned how to make, uh, use a lot of power tools. I, I made, it was 10 cents a pallet. I made five the first day. The last day I worked there, I made 145 pallets. And I got self-esteem from that. I mean, you know, it, it just, the, the doctor bit just didn't seem to give it to me, but, uh, but that did. And I decided I wasn't going to go back into medicine. And, uh, my wife had filed for a divorce and wouldn't talk to me and, I had taken a bus over there to see the kids a couple of times. The minute I walked in the house, she walked out, and actually I really wanted to, you know, see her too. Um, I got a call from D.P. Smith, who ran the physician's program in Mississippi, and he wanted me to come back up to Hattiesburg. I said, no, I'm going to get a job somewhere at a hospital, maybe doing EKGs, but medicine's the problem. I need to stay out. Um, I had had my Alabama license revoked. Um, my Mississippi license, I did have a Mississippi license, was sort of on hold. And he said, well, you're going to lose it, too, if you don't come back. So um, I went back to his program for about a month. And the reason he wanted me to come back is he wanted me to go up to another treatment facility he had in Jackson called COPAC. And he wanted me to work there because he needed somebody. And he needed somebody to do histories and physicals. Well, the bottom line was I decided, you know, I would go do that for a short while. And I lived out there for about three or four months, and uh, 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 I've never left. I'm still at Copac 14 years later. Um, and the last place in the world I wanted to live was Jackson, Mississippi. I said, God, get me out of here. Um, I had to grieve the loss of doing internal medicine because uh, I always kept thinking I was going to, you know, Go back. Uh, I know I'm running running out of time, but I, I really I really want to talk about a little bit about being sober. What was different this time is I had some people. They said, "Go stand by the coffee pot. Anybody that comes by uh, coming in the meeting, introduce yourself. Go stand by it when they're leaving. Introduce yourself. Go with somebody and um, have coffee after the meeting." I learned what an issue and a problem was. Uh, an issue was my wife won't talk to me. A problem is I my wife's taking all the money or I don't know how to support my family or I want to see my kids. Um, I guess I always put those in the category of things that I was supposed to solve uh, before. I got a sponsor that I was able to actually call up, though it was very difficult. And I don't know if any of y'all, if any of y'all ever sat there in front of a phone trying to call your sponsor and you dial the number and then you hang up and you dial the number and you hang up. And you're just terrified of talking to him and asking him a question. Um, I got um, with a, 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 a man that worked out at Copac who was getting divorced, and we lived together with yet another single uh, male. Uh, my wife was beginning to talk to me, but the, the bottom line was we were separated about a year and a half uh, before she agreed to uh, to come to Mississippi. Um, I think sometimes now when I have people in treatment, one of the, uh, uh, they come out and they've been in treatment and they say the promises are coming true. And I thought that also, I didn't think I was supposed to have any financial problems. I thought, I thought the horrible fear I had of people, uh, 
would go away immediately. I couldn't, I couldn't have done this stand up here in front of y'all 14 years ago. I mean, I literally would not be able to talk. Um, and, you know, again, it was survival. The, the, the fear that drove me to act like I was okay was the same thing that kept me from getting beaten up when I was a child. Um, my wife came back. My kids came back. Uh, I had a stepson that, that moved back and subsequently went to medical school in Jackson. He's now an orthopedic resident. Um, I had to go through the thing of uh, going from having a job, beginning to feel like I was being used and not appropriately paid to meet with people and ask for what I needed, um, which was very difficult for me. Um, to beginning to participate in organizations, to have to give up, get up and give talks and, 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 and lots of responsibilities. My wife and I figured out we hated each other. Uh, we never followed that bad in, uh, uh, when, when I was drinking. I found therapy. You know, if you got a problem, you ask for help until you get an answer. Uh, if it's not, if it's AA, fine. And then if you have to go to therapy, fine. If you have to go to the psychiatrist, fine. But you keep asking and eventually the problem will be solved. And I don't know how many years of, you know, therapy I went to and we went to. Um, uh, we had problems with the kids. One of them was depressed. Uh, one of them now is 18, has had an alcohol-related wreck and a DUI. Um, Life has always been difficult for me. Um, what this program did is it gave me a way to deal with those problems. Um, and and they're, they're there. They don't go away. And a lot of people don't realize that in recovery and sobriety, you still have problems. And every time they come up against one, they balk. And if you don't get through them, you never get the experience um, uh, and faith that the program works. There is there is absolutely nothing that I cannot take to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting now. It it doesn't have to be uh, a doctor's uh, meeting for me to go talk about my job, for instance. Um, sometimes I need a doctor's meeting to talk about uh, my job. Uh, gradually, those promises did come true, though. And I guess the the thing I have today, and I think Kevin touched on this, is I know in my heart of hearts, my gut of guts, that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. That God will get me through it. He, it may not come out the way that I want, but I will successfully get through it without drinking and will will be okay. Um I don't think I ever trusted God to, you know, to do that before. Uh, the marriage has gotten great, though we still uh, we still fight with each other. Uh, the first two kids are are, are doing well. Uh, I participate in. A lot of organizations trying to uh, uh, help alcoholics. I um, I have a lot of difficulty trying to figure out a lot of times if that participation is because I need the pats on the back or whether I'm really trying to help people. 
But at this point in my life, at least I can look at that um, and realize that I'm no better, no worse, you know, than anybody else. And I think it swings uh, in different directions. Uh, I'm financially secure, but still insecure about being financially secure. Um, I have more than I ever would have dreamed for since sobriety. My whole family has learned to ski, to dive, to hunt, to fish. I took up hunt, hunting, and I never thought I would like it. And I, you know, I love it. New interests. Um, um, I cannot imagine going back, though. I know that I could do that. I know that I could use tonight or tomorrow. Uh, and as long as I entertain that possibility, I think I'll do the things that I need to do to stay sober. Uh, I, I, I don't think or I don't choose to go through that pain Again, and I remember that pain as fresh as if, if it was yesterday. I remember sitting in that halfway house and having absolutely nothing except to either shoot myself in the head or to get sober. Um, and I see, I'm going to finish here real quick, I, I see a lot of people not not getting the same thing that I didn't get, not learning how to use uh, this program. Um, and I don't know what to do about that because some of us can't use it because we have skills that enable us to survive that are against using it. Anyway, I'm just rambling now, so I'll quit. I want to thank y'all for letting me talk and uh, uh, appreciate being here. And I've got a group of friends now. You know, never had those before. The people, people I don't mind saying anything to. And that, I think that's what this program is about. Thanks. Thank you.